Let's get our Bibles out, open to Colossians chapter 3. We're continuing our study through the book of Colossians, and we're going to celebrate this Christmas season in Colossians. We're, as God would have it, in the providence of God, right in a uh, place in the book of Colossians where uh, it is just filled week in and week out with uh, the great gifts of the gospel. And so we're just going to continue to focus on Colossians through this Christmas season and allow it to minister to our hearts um, this morning as we look at chapter 3. If you didn't bring up a, a Bible with you, just grab the pew Bible in front of you, open to page 1345 and, or 1354, and you'll find Colossians chapter 3. We're going to talk a little bit about looking complete in the mirror. You know, uh, you may feel, you may be something, it may be true that we are something, but then we look in the mirror, and though we in reality are something, we may see something completely different. Because when we look in the mirror, what we see, the image reflected back to us, is filtered through um, the thoughts of our own mind and what we, uh, the beliefs that are in our own mind. And so we're going to talk a little bit about um, that reality. Let's pray and then we'll study together. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the gift of celebrating you, Lord, and thank you for this amazing opportunity we have to study your word. God, every time we open up the scripture, it's an opportunity for you to speak directly into our hearts, and we're grateful for it and thankful. We ask now, Father, that you'll take your perfect word, minister it into our lives, God, that we would have ears to hear and hearts that are willing to receive. Father, make us more like you today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember last week I pointed out to you that the first two chapters of Colossians are really about uh, proclaiming the supremacy of Christ, that Paul spends two entire chapters, the first half of the book, just building up the reality in our minds of how God is supreme in Christ over all things, that it's, it's absolutely essential that you understand the supremacy of Christ before you can move to the second half of the book where Paul's going to talk about practicing uh, that reality, practicing in the supremacy of Christ, practicing and devoting our lives to living as if God were who He says He is and that He has accomplished what He said He has. So remember, we've really been um, just gathering our thoughts every week around chapter 2, verse 10, where the Bible says that we are complete in Him. Complete, that as a believer, the reality is no matter what you see looking back at you, when you look in the mirror, if you are a child of God this morning, the Bible says you are complete in Christ and that He is above every power and principality. And so Paul has, from the very onset in the book of Colossians, been dropping little hints to us to prepare us for these things he's going to say to us in these weeks. Do you remember uh, in the very introduction of the book in verse 2 where Paul says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae? That, that little phrase, in Christ, is there to sort of put pause and to think, well, they're not in Christ, they're in Colossae. They live in this, this little town called Colossae. But Paul's saying, no, they're in Christ and they live in Colossae. Now, regardless of 
what they see when they look in the mirror, they're in Christ. And then in verse 28, where he says, It's him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And again, that verse is preceded by this mind-boggling, jaw-dropping reality in verse 27. To them God willed to make known the riches of His glory, this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's been dropping these hints about us being in Christ and Christ being in us so that when we get to the practical application of what this means, we would be able to receive it and understand it. Because without this, you would just walk away today. You'd read the passage we're going to read and you'd just think, well, I'm a failure. Or you'd think maybe, well, I must not be saved. I need to start this all over again. Or, um, you know, you would just be defeated. You know, we so oftentimes we, what we want God to do is we want God to work out our circumstances. We want God to fix the situations that we find ourselves in that we don't really understand how to, to get through. And so we, even in our prayer and even in the way that we, we think about God and speak of God, it's that we want Him to fix our circumstances. But God certainly works in our circumstances, but that's not His priority. His priority is not your circumstances. His priority is you. And there's a very good reason for that. See, because your circumstances and my circumstances are temporal. God is not devoted to the temporal things of this world. He's devoted to that which is eternal. And so his work, his primary work is in you because you as his child are eternal. And so the question that we have to ask this morning is, well, if he's in me and he's at work in me, Well, then what is he doing? What is he up to in me? What is this work that he is accomplishing? And I would say to you this morning that the best way to sum up Christ's work in you is with the word renewing. He is renewing you. The Bible says over and over that what God is doing in you and what He is doing in me is He is renewing us. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. You see, we're being renewed. It's not a one-time operation, but it is an ongoing daily process of renewal. Titus chapter 3 verse 5, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. You see, saved people, you're already saved according to Titus 3, but there's this renewing of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 12, verse 2, the Bible says, Do not be conformed to the things of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which is the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. There's this renewing that's going on. Now, now just look at Romans 12 for, for a second. The Bible says not to be conformed to the things of this world, but to be. So against being conformed to the things of this world would be to be transformed. But this transformation, this transforming process that's happening day by day while Christ is in us is the renewing of our mind. But notice what it'll do. 
the renewing of our mind produces our ability to walk in, to live in, to experience what is God's perfect will. In other words, the process of renewal conforms us, or to look at it from the other side, it breaks down our natural, our natural resistance to what God is trying to do in us. You, you understand that you don't naturally want your mind renewed. Because naturally, what you want to do is what you want to do. Because that's what you've always done. That's what I did for 25 years until God saved me. So I had 25 years of practice of doing what I wanted to do, the way I wanted to do it, feeding my desires and my wants. And then suddenly, God saves me. And now I'm in this process of learning day by day, of being renewed day by day, not being conformed to the things of this world, but transforming me that I may live and experience and prove what is his perfect acceptable will. So if you're saying to yourself, well, I don't feel very renewed, well, maybe that's because you are working against the process of renewal in you. Our mind, for, for really for all of us, our minds have not caught up with our identity in Christ. None of us, no matter how mature you may think that you are, your mind is lagging behind the reality of who you are in Christ. You see, because the Bible says in Christ, we're complete. That we've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. So we have the tools, essentially, in Christ to live a perfect life, to wake up every day, and to live our life in such a way that is pleasing to God, yet none of us can ever manage to do that because we're in the process of this renewal that's taking shape little by little, day by day, bit by bit, piece by piece. And that's why what we want to do is we want to ask ourselves this morning, when, when I, as a child of God, look into the mirror, what do I see? Do I see the reality of the completeness that is there? Do I see the process of renewal that's taking place as God is working in me or do I see something that's not there maybe it would be easier to think of it this way for many Christians life in Christ would be like Clark Kent having all of the capacity and ability of Superman to he is essentially Superman but if he lived his entire life as Clark Kent, just every single day going to the Daily Globe and working as an assistant reporter, he wouldn't be any less Superman. But look at how different his life experience would be. As a believer, you don't want to walk around like Clark Kent when the Bible says you've been made complete in Christ, which essentially makes you kind of like Superman or Superwoman. So when we get to the practical side of this, that's why last week we spent the whole service talking about Paul's uh, command to set our minds on things above, not on things of this world. 
that there's this renewal process taking place, and it's renewing our mind, the way that we're thinking, the way that we're understanding, and that we don't need to get caught up looking around at the things that are around us thinking that that's all there is or that those are the most important things because nothing could be further from the truth. Remember in John chapter 11, the famous story of, of Jesus and Lazarus? Remember how Jesus was informed that his friend Lazarus was sick and then he hesitated and uh, stalled before he went to Bethany. And so when he gets to Bethany, he's informed that Lazarus has been dead for four days and his sisters, Mary and Martha, were, uh, you know, just beside themselves with, with grief. And they're thinking, well, Jesus, if, if you would have if you would have came, if you, if you would have hurried up, you'd have got here in time, and he wouldn't have died. And Jesus is, is weeping with them, but yet Jesus didn't come when he could have. He waited, and he shows up, and his friend Lazarus is in the grave Four days. I mean, he's not just dead. The Bible says he stinks. He's a rotting corpse in a tomb. And so Jesus, with tears running down his eyes, surrounded by people who were just in probably the darkest moment of their life to that point, he has them roll the stone away from the tomb, and then he calls forth Lazarus, Come forth, and out of the tomb comes Lazarus. But he doesn't just come strolling out, fully uh, ready to take on the world. No, he sort of comes hopping out like he's in a three-legged sack race or something. He's, the Bible says, wrapped up in his grave clothes, and so he, he looks like a mummy, and you know, all you can see is his eyes. He can't talk, he can't walk, he's just hopping out there. And he gets out of the tomb and everyone realizes that he's alive and they all start probably just jumping up and down and hugging each other and, and cheering. And then Jesus is like, <clears throat> excuse me, would somebody go up there and unwrap him? You know, Lazarus is probably going, hey, hey, unwrap me. And they're all so overjoyed they've forgotten that he's all wrapped up. Well, in many ways, we can be like Lazarus. We can be people who have been raised to new life, but we're not free yet. We're still wrapped up in the grave clothes of, of death. We're still living as if the old things were still true. Lazarus, was, he was saved and given life, but he, was still, he still stunk. He was still smelly. Maybe the reason they didn't run up and unwrap him was because they were afraid to touch him. He was rescued, but he was still reeking. He was energized, but he was still enslaved. He had life, but he hadn't been liberated. You don't want that to be you today. You don't want to be a person who has been given life, who's been granted freedom over the death that you were born into, but yet 
you walked into church this morning, and in many ways you're still confined to the grave clothes of your previous condition. Some of you, I am sure, this morning you looked in the mirror and you saw anything but a complete person looking back at you. You saw anything but a person who's been liberated because what you saw is a person who's in the situations and the circumstances that you're in. And maybe you're wondering, God, why? Why have you not changed my circumstances? Why have you not made things that are the way they ought not be? Because I don't understand. So Paul speaks into that condition this morning. In Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5, here's what the Bible says. You read with me. He says, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, Now remember, he just said, focus on things above, not on the earth. What are these things? Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 6, because these things, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off these things, anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Now that may not sound at first hearing like the most encouraging passage of Scripture you've ever read. But trust me, it is. If you understand what God is saying here, you would realize what a tremendous opportunity is before all of us today to grab hold of this and to walk into new freedom. The first thing I want you to think about is that what God's calling us to do is throw away our old clothes. Throw those grave clothes off You see, we have to understand how sin exists in our lives as believers. If we don't understand this reality, then we're going to get all tripped up when uh, life hits us in a way that we weren't expecting. If you are a child of God this morning, here's what you need to know about sin. God, on the cross, through His Son Jesus, removed the penalty and the power of sin in your life. But he did not remove the presence of that sin. The penalty has been erased. The power has been eradicated. But the presence is still there. And if you don't understand how that works, you are going to be in all sorts of trouble because you're going to get confused immediately and in every way as you sort of live your life. You're going to get discouraged and you're going to start to question things that ought to, things will make you uncertain that are there to make you more certain that you're a child of God. Let me give you an example. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1 verse 7, that we're to walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. So we have been cleansed from all 
sin. The very next verse. Now, what did it say? Cleansed from all sin. The next verse says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see? You've been cleansed from sin, but if you think sin's not in you and you don't have sin, you deceive yourself and the truth isn't in you. It's cleansed, but it's still present. You see, in Christ, although it's still present, we have victory over sin, but it's still there. Here's another way God puts it in Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my own members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Now, where is this, where is this war taking place in Paul? His mind. When you look in the mirror, what is filtering what you see back? Your mind. It's not your eyes. It's your mind. It's your mind. It's the way you think. It's, it's the renewing of the mind. And so Paul says this captivity, which is the law of sin, which is in my members. Verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, there's the most saved man you're ever going to meet. The, the most saved man you're ever going to read his words, the Apostle Paul, who fully understands his utter and complete salvation and cleansing of sin, yet it's still present in his life. And the battle is raging in the mind. And so here in Colossians, Paul has absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt allowed us all to understand the reality of the supremacy of Christ, that nothing's above him, that no power or authority threatens him, that there's nothing he can't do, that he's supreme over all things. Then he begins to talk to us about now. Here's what we need to do, verse 5. Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. So these uh, there's 11 specific things he lists in both lists, but the first list here we've got fornication. The Greek word is pornea. It's where we get the word pornography. It's uh, sexual depravity. It's using the, the physical, natural desires of sexuality in a way in which God did not intend succumbing to those things in a way in which he didn't intend. Then he says passion, or that word could be translated lust, that's your, to fantasize about things, or evil desires, which is really one word in the Greek. It's the word for desires, but it has an intensifier on it. It's like to over-desire, to desire too much, to take something that God's given as a gift that's good, but then to desire it so much that it becomes unhealthy, which is what really all of these things have in common. Isn't it interesting that God adds to this list greed or covetousness? To covet something, as the Bible warns against in the Tenth Commandment, not to covet our neighbor's house or our neighbor's wife, that we can covet things that are... Uh, uh, Things, material things, or we can covet people. 
You see, because of these things, verse 6, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. That these things have created a scenario in the world. In other words, the, the, the presence of all of these things that are ordinary to the world in which we live in. These things are, 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 are just everyday things to someone who is not a Christian. They're, 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 they're what you watch on TV. They're what you see all the time. They're what, they're what uh, the, 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 the mind apart from Christ would fixate on these things all the time and live for these things. And it's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. You know, when, when Moses, in Exodus chapter 32, when he comes down off the mountain of Sinai with, where he had just been with God, and he's, he's coming down and he finds the children of Israel uh, worshiping a golden calf. You remember the scene? And, and so there's Aaron and they're all dancing around worshiping this golden calf. Moses, in his in his utter disappointment and his, his rage, does not tell the people, stop doing that and start worshiping God. That's not what he does. He understands a very important principle. Before they can turn from their idolatry, what do they have to do? They have to destroy the calf. The first thing that has to happen is the golden calf is destroyed. Once they get rid of that, then they can turn and worship God. You see, and so that's why the Bible's saying put to death these things. Look at verse 7. So, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. You see, but you no longer walk in these things. Paul is simply laying out the reality of what is. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that there's not people who are in Christ and who are in this room and who are utterly and completely addicted and in bondage to sexual sin. That's just a reality that all of us in here ought to be absolutely 100% sure of because it's a reality. Some of it is secret, some of it is not. Mostly, uh, when it comes to the addiction of pornography, that would be the men in the room, but not exclusively. But sexual sin has entrapped and put people in bondage in ways in which no other generation has ever experienced. And some of you have walked into this room this morning, and right now your heart breaks because you hate this. You hate the fact that it's you. hate the fact that you do the things you do. But yet you do. And what I want you to know this morning is that if you're in Christ, you no longer live in those things. They no longer have power over you. You are allowing yourself to be victimized by things that no longer have power and authority over you. But now, verse 8, you yourselves are to put off all these. You put them off. You see, because you're not who you used to be. So it's like you, you used to be worshiping this golden calf. Well, now you, you get rid of it. Put all this off. Put what off? Put off the anger, the wrath, the malice, the blasphemy, the filthy language out of your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. You see, Paul is trying to explain to you and me that we're not who we were. But that if you don't understand the supremacy of Christ in all things, then believe me, you're not going to make it two steps down this road because you're going you're to fall victim to the lie that God simply can't change these things. That, that something hasn't worked the way it ought to work because what you see when you look in the mirror is not what I'm talking about is not the person who has the power and authority to overcome these things, but that's because your mind has not been re- renewed. It has nothing to do with who you actually are. It's simply the renewing of your mind. And so instead, we're to, we're to put these things off, this, this anger. What is anger and, and wrath? Malice, having, malice is having anger in your heart towards another person. Wrath is this rage that just flows out of us in these big outbursts. Blasphemy or slander, attacking, tearing down other people, uh, diminishing their character, or filthy language. Well, what, what, are, what are these? What are these sins? If your mouth is still occasionally spilling forth filthy language, where does that come from? What is it in you that, that makes you hang on to that? Why is it that you could stop saying any other word in your vocabulary that you want to, but those few words seem to linger on why? What about those of you in the room that the people around you would say, you've got a bad temper, and if uh, and then they walk on eggshells because they don't want to set you off. They don't want your, your wrath to come bursting forth or your anger. Where does that come from? You see, those are self-serving. All of these 11 sins that Paul's listed are all they're self-serving. They're self-referential. In other words, they're, they elevate the self. Do you know... Where that comes from? You know why that, that explosion of rage comes out of you? It's because it gets you what you want. You're so offended that you didn't get what you think you deserve that you get in a rage so that people will bow down and bend to you, that they're afraid of your rage so they'll give you what you want. It's self-referential. You use filthy language not because it just flies out of your mouth, but because you're trying to get what you want. You're using that language to express yourself in a way that is appealing to your flesh. A man looks at pornography because he wants something. He wants something. A woman is caught up in sexual immorality because she wants something. She's putting herself above other things. That all of these sins are self-propagating. They're self-referential. They're used to advance one's position or agenda. Now, Paul could have listed anything. My goodness, if he started listing all the sins we struggle with, it would be a whole lot more than 11, wouldn't there be? So why these? Why these self-referential sins? 
because Paul has just gotten done teaching us in every way, shape, and form the danger of legalism. And the, the, the power under legalism is to prop oneself up. And so now he's showing us these sins that we fall into that prop us up, that, that, that appease our flesh, that all of these things are, are, are for us. You know somebody who's super touchy? Like, I mean, you're afraid to say anything to them because you'll hurt their feelings. No matter what you say, they hear it in the worst possible sense. You know anybody like that? It's because they're, they're succumbing to these self-referential sins. They're offended. They're so easily offended. They're, they're so easily upset. They're, because their heart, nine out of ten times, their heart's filled with bitterness. Somewhere there's bitterness. There's malice in their heart. You see, when you look in the mirror, what you believe to be true is going to influence in such a great and powerful way what you see looking back at you. It's not going to control. It's just going to greatly influence what you see looking back at you. So the way I like to say it is that Theology always eventuates into ethics. Whatever you believe is going to eventually lead to what you do. And so you, when you look in the mirror, when you think about the renewing of your mind, who are you in the reality of Scripture? Not what do you feel like. Your feelings are going to sell you out every time. The most miserable people that I have ever known in my life are people who are victimized continually by their feelings. But I feel, but I feel, but I feel. But what are you? What is? Not what you feel, but what is? You're being victimized by an unrenewed mind. Now, if your mind is renewed, things start to change. So secondly, I want us to look at that change. Paul says, change into new clothes. Take off those old and put on the new. The Christian life is like we become a Christian and we start taking off old things and we start putting on new things. And it's this process of renewal. You see, you can't renew something if you don't take off the old to put on the new. If you just pile the new on top of the old, you're really not renewing something, are you? No, because the old is still there. So if you were to, if you were to, to tell your, your child to go upstairs and, and put some clean clothes on because you're going somewhere, and they went upstairs and put their clean clothes on over their dirty clothes, you'd whip their butt. It would be ridiculous. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't be sensible. Well, in the same way, you can't just turn from your golden calf and start worshiping God with the calf sitting there. We've got to put that off. We've got to get rid of that. We've got to stop walking in things that we're dead to, that we're no longer part of our lives, that don't belong there anymore. 
So that's what he says in verse 10. He says, And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Now again, we're renewed how? In knowledge. What is this knowledge? It's the knowledge of the one whose image you've been created in. So the more you know about the one whom you've been created in the image of, the more you understand the transition that's taking place in your life when you became a Christian. The more you get the reality of who you are so that when you look in the mirror, you see what you are looking back at you. And that you embrace this daily process of being renewed in knowledge. A couple things about these changes that are taking place in us. The first thing is the change involves a conscious decision. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 10. Put on the new man. In other words, you have to act on that imperative. You have to actually put it on. You don't just sit around and think about it. He didn't say, well, meditate on the new man. No. He said, put it on. It takes a deliberate, conscious decision to put it on. That's the first thing. The second thing is that change involves a continual process. Like we've already said, renewed in knowledge. It's not, it's not this one-time uh, renewal that takes place, and then we're good. No. We, you know that. If you were saved more than five minutes, you know that. That salvation doesn't make you perfect. It puts you in the process. It makes you complete and your experience is that you're in the process of being renewed. It's a continual process. You see, we can't change ourselves. It, you, you spent your whole life looking in the mirror, seeing things you didn't like, seeing things that you wish were different, and they never changed. You can't change anything. You can't, you can't make yourself. Sure, you can, you can change your behavior. You can modify your behavior for a short time, but it's only going to last for a short time. The only way there's going to be permanent, lasting change is if your mind is renewed supernaturally, which is something you and I can't do for ourselves. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 that we're confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. See, He is renewing us. He began this good work. He's faithful to complete it. But it's not complete until the end. That every day is, a, is another day that He's working. It's a process, a continual process. And thirdly, change involves discovering God's purpose for our life. You see, we're renewed in knowledge according to the image of Him who created us. Very specific language in verse 10. Remember, we said that renewal, it, it breaks down our resistance to God's purpose in our life. Remember we said that? Okay, well, if the purpose of salvation is to recreate us into the image of Jesus, to do this over time, then clearly the reason God saved us was not just so that we'd get to heaven. Because if the only point of salvation was that 
saved people go to heaven, well, then what the church ought to do is that every time a person gets saved, we ought to shoot them. Which then would leave the question of, well, then who would be there to lead people to salvation? Because it ain't going to be me. You see, it's clearly not just so that we go to heaven. Clearly, there's a process in this life. And it's the process of being renewed. God has a purpose. And change, renewing of the mind, involves discovering that purpose. Romans chapter 8, we know that all things work together. They all work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Now, what is His purpose? See, the very next verse. For whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. It's right there. So, what's the purpose? The purpose is to conform us into Jesus. And how does that purpose play out? By the slow, continual, daily renewing of our mind that God does. He renews our mind as we put off the old and put on the new. As we, as we stop living like something we no longer are. So you say to yourself, well, I don't, I don't know if this is really that helpful. Because you don't know my situation. You don't know the, the struggle that I face every day, Pastor. You don't know the the bondage that I'm in. You don't know the amount of time that I've been... You don't think I've tried to put these things off before? Well, I know the truth about what the Bible says is true about you if you're saved. That's what I know. Now, it's not what I feel. It's what I know. And I know what the book of Colossians has said to us, and so do most of you. And so if the Bible says that the truth is that you are this new creation, that you are this this new man who is able to put off the old, who's complete in Christ, then that's the truth. Because if that's not the truth, we might as well just shut the lights out and all go get some lunch and forget this whole thing. So if that's true, then what if... What if you feel, what if you seem, what if your life is existing in a place that's a million miles away from that reality? The most shocking verse in this passage is the one everybody overlooks because we just read it and go, whatever that is. But it's the one that when the church at Colossae heard it, they locked up. Their knees buckled a little bit. It was so earth-shattering, so revolutionary, so mind-blowing that Paul would say what he says in verse 11. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised. Listen, you've got this class system that is existing. You've got the the Greeks who are refined and who love knowledge and education. 
And the Jews are just these weird people who have all these weird uh, festivals and beliefs and they eat weird food and they believe weird things and they're, they're not dignified. They're not, they're not, you know, they're not highly enlightened like the Greeks. They don't, they don't, ha- they don't speak the correct language. They're just different. They're just, they're just a different class. And this whole circumcision thing is just bizarre. It's weird. I mean, come on. To the Greek, they look at the Jews and just think, and then the Jews look at the Greeks in the same way. And this division that existed. But then Paul, he, he, he says, you know what? None of that matters. That the Jew and the Greek are both complete in Christ, to both look in the mirror and see the same reality looking back at them regardless of how different they are, regardless of what you think about them, that there's no distinction in Christ. But then he goes on, he says, but what about the, the barbarians? The, the Greeks used that terminology for people who spoke different languages and were so, they were so uncultured that their, they, their languages sound like babbling. It was just nonsense. They were just like animals. They're barbarians. They're subhuman. And I'm just imagining this being read by Epaphras in the church of Colossae and people going, what? Scythians? These are the most depraved Lowest, filthy, wicked people. I, I, I was reading on the Scythians. I was reading some historical commentary about these people, about their practices, about their, their, their ways of torturing their enemies. I started thinking about the people in Colossae. What did they think of when they thought of the Scythians? What did they think of when they had heard about these people who would capture their enemies? Skin them alive. Use the skins from their forehead as napkins of those they tortured as they drank their blood out of their broken skulls. Paul says, even the Scythians. You see, right now, I'm thinking about people who wear black sheets wrapped around their face so the only thing you can see are their eyes. That's who I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about what would happen if one of them walked in here right now. That's what it would have been like if a Scythian walked in the church at Colossae. Yeah. And Paul is saying that if one of those people as wicked and horrific and, and unimaginably violent as they are, if God saves them, they're just like you. 
And yet we, we have all these divisions and stereotypes in our mind that we allow to creep into our understanding of Christ that are completely and utterly false. Paul's saying there's going to be a new term that's going to come into your vocabulary. It's going to be, it doesn't matter who you meet. It doesn't matter what uh, race they are, what ethnicity, ethnicity they are, what socioeconomic status they come from. doesn't matter the color of their skin, blue collar. doesn't matter white collar. doesn't matter their upbringing. doesn't matter their language. doesn't matter anything about them. If they are saved, they're your brother and your sister. That he's sending the message that this transformation of salvation is so sweeping that it sweeps across every division that you and I can humanly imagine. And so he's saying, even if the most wicked, evil person you could ever imagine, if God saves that person, they're your brother. They're not the old person anymore. They're the new person. So let's think back to our story of Lazarus for a second. John chapter 11, verse 44. After Jesus calls him forth out of the tomb, here's what the Bible says. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Now, I want us to just think about the reality of this moment right here. Here is a group of people standing around who are mourning the loss of someone they love who's been dead for four days, who is so utterly and completely dead that they can smell him. Jesus shows up, calls him forth. He hops out wrapped in grave clothes, which is strange in and of itself. And then he says, loose him and let him go. The first thing I want us to see about this is that clearly nothing is impossible with God. In other words, don't think that God can't save someone because of their wickedness or their evil or their depravity or their... No, he calls four-day dead people out of the grave. You understand? It's not impossible for him. Any man, woman, or child on the planet who will confess with their mouth that he is the Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. And in that moment, he is new and complete, or she is new and complete like you and me, and that's our brother and our sister. And that ought to encourage you this morning because no matter where you are in this moment, no matter what your circumstances are saying to you about you that are impacting what you see when you look in the mirror, nothing is impossible for God. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter how, how, how bad things have gotten. It doesn't matter how many people you've hurt. It doesn't matter how many times you've gone around this circle. God can save you. Nothing is impossible for God. The second thing is the, even the stench of death won't stop Jesus. 
You know, as I thought about Lazarus, I thought about myself. I just thought about me, and I thought about when God saved me, and I thought about who I was when God saved me, and I thought, why in the world would God save me? There was a whole lot of people that were a whole lot more worthy seemingly to me to be saved. There's a whole lot of people that God could have done a whole lot more things with in a whole lot less time, it seemed like to me. I mean, my life reeked with death. But it didn't stop Jesus. It didn't stop him from calling Lazarus forth. It didn't stop him from calling you, and it won't stop him this morning. And so if you are Christ, if you are his son or daughter, then this morning, it's all it is, is you submitting to what's already been done. It's you succumbing to what's already taken place. God, I'm taking off the old. I am, I'm, why would I walk in that which I am dead to? The third thing is, is that it's only the words of Christ that can break the noose. In other words, they could have done anything they want. I mean, I'm sure over these four days there's been a lot of things going on. I'm sure that Mary and Martha and all their friends were gathered around Lazarus the whole time he was sick. And don't you know they were praying for him? Don't you know they were, they were just reaching up to God and they were begging God to, to heal him? They were uh, quoting scripture. They were singing hymns. They were doing everything they knew how to do. But nothing changed anything. Then the word of God comes forth and all of a sudden, boom, he's out of the tomb. In other words, how is your mind going to be renewed? It's not going to be renewed by my words. It's not going to be renewed by the words of your spouse. It's not going to be renewed by the words of some Christian book you read. It's going to be renewed by the words of God. That his words are in a whole different category from all the other words. That anybody else at any time in any way could have said all they wanted to. Lazarus wasn't moving until the king of kings and lord of lords spoke. And when he spoke, things started happening. So maybe for you this morning, you are failing to... See what the reality of your salvation is is because you've neglected the word of God in your life. And so you just understand, I need to renew my mind daily. I need to put his words in my mind. And I need to lay aside the things of this world. Number four. Jesus uses people to accomplish his mission. This is what I, I, I don't understand. God calls a dead man to life. Okay? Now, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm not saying that, that anything's hard for God. I'm not saying that it took any more uh, power for God to do that than it did for him to calm the seas or to heal the blind or anything else. I don't really know how that works. I know that God just has this infinite amount of power to do anything he wants to do. But in my economy, that is the hardest thing to do. And so if he can call someone forth from the dead then wouldn't it just seem like it would have been a little cooler if he just strolled out already without the grave clothes on? I mean, in other words, if you can raise him from the dead, why can't you take his clothes off? You can. But why didn't he? You see, he left him that way for a reason. It didn't just... It wasn't just a, a, a coincidence that he come stumbling out of there. No, no, God did that for a reason. Because God knew that he would do that, and then God would say, now go up there and loose him. In other words, 
God uses people in his mission. That when he raised you from the dead, when he called you forth out of the tomb in salvation, he didn't call you to a life on your own. No, you came hobbling out, fully alive. All your organs functioning perfectly. You're as alive as you've ever been, but you're still wrapped in these grave clothes. How are you going to get these off? God could miraculously take them off, but he doesn't. He uses other people to help you unravel yourself, just like he did Lazarus. You see, we all need help getting these old clothes off, putting aside these old things. So when you, now listen to me, how does this practically play out? So when you, when you hear somebody who's your brother or sister use filthy language, don't freak out and act like a moron. Understand that they're still wearing something that they need to take off. And so help them take that off so that they can put on something new because you used to do the same thing. You see, little by little since the day I was saved, I've been getting unwrapped little by little. You have been getting unwrapped. And in this process, we're always around people that are further along the journey than we are and people who are behind us in the journey. And our tendency is to be very graceful and to expect lots of grace from all the people that are ahead of us towards us, but to not show much grace to those who are behind us. Isn't that true? Come on, you liars, say amen. <laughs> Y'all know you're lying in church. See, you, you want Pastor Tony to show you grace when you come to confess something to me, don't you? Yes. But then when you catch somebody else wearing something they ought not be wearing, you lower the boom on them. No. We help each other unwrap layer by layer, bit by bit, piece by piece. So here's God's message for you this morning. If you're struggling with urges of your flesh, with things of the old life, you find yourself consumed by anger or hatred towards others, you have malice in your heart, you need to understand what you need to do is walk in this process of renewal. It's your mind where this war is being waged and where you're losing. And you need to put off the old and you need to put on the new. You need to start putting on the new clothes that God sent his son to die for that you might be able to wear those clothes, that his purpose for you is for you to look like the Lord Jesus. But you can't do that alone. So that's why the, the church is so important. That's why fellowship is so important for us to be together. And we need to understand that it's our job not to be bystanders to those who are somewhere on the journey around us, but to be cheering on those who are ahead and to be graceful to those who are behind. To be graceful. And that means to be truthful. Listen, the worst thing you can do is not to be ungraceful. The worst thing you can do is to be untruthful and to ignore it. That's the worst thing. 
Sometimes I think about where I'd be today if, if people just ignored my old grave clothes that I used to wear. If they didn't take time and, and talk to me about that and work with me and disciple me and teach me. And lastly, change. Before you can be unwrapped, you have to come out of the tomb. The reality is this morning that there's some, there's some people who are sitting in the tomb right now. You're sitting there. In your death, so to speak, you're sitting in the tomb and you're asking Jesus to come and, and to set you free. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Jesus is saying, come out. You have to respond to his voice. You can't put on the new man until you are a new man. He's calling out to every one of us this morning and understand he knows everything about you. Everything. He knows every single thing about every one of us. And yet he's calling out. And he's saying, come. Come to me. Come out of the tomb. I did not, I did not die for you to live in a tomb. I died for you to live free. I came that you may know me. That you would know my words and that they would make you free. Come out. Come to him. Put off these things that are no longer true in your life. Look in the mirror and see. See what I've accomplished in salvation looking back at you. And know that it's a process. Daily renewal. Step by step. Bit by bit. One baby step at a time. Let's stand and bow our heads.